Welcome everyone to Sixers History, the podcast, with your host Curtis Harris. Uh, today we'll be speaking with Christian Figueroa, whose great uncle Leo Ferris was general manager of the Syracuse Nationals from 1949 to 1955. In particular, we'll be discussing the impact and influence that Leo had through uh, the acquisitions he made, a couple of notable ones being Dolph Shays and Earl Lloyd, but we'll get into much more of some of the draft picks and trades he swung. Uh, but also we'll speak about his greater influence on the sport of basketball via his work to co-create the shot clock. Uh, his particular contribution in that endeavor was devising the formula of 24 seconds, and I will tell you more about that in the episode. Uh, but as great as this episode is, and you know, as much time as I spend speaking with Christian, it's only about 40 minutes here that we'll be talking about Leo Ferris. That's not enough time to talk, to talk about all the history there is. So obviously we encourage you to follow Sixers History, at Sixers History, on Twitter and Instagram. But also give Christian a follow at Leo Ferris NBA. So that's Leo Ferris NBA. Uh, he has a Twitter and Instagram account where uh, he just basically shows historic uh, newspapers, photographs uh, about his great uncle, Leo Ferris. Uh, great historical research for anyone interested in NBA history, basketball history uh, from the 1940s and 1950s. But in the meantime, y'all can enjoy this podcast here. Uh, great conversation we have here at Christian, so I really do hope you enjoy it. Thanks for having me, Curtis. My name is Christian Figueroa. I am the great nephew of Leo Francis Ferris. Um, uh, on my mother's side, Leo was uh, my mother's uncle. All right, and uh, just let the people know who are listening, uh, who is Leo Ferris? Well, Leo Ferris was the old GM of the Syracuse Nationals. Uh, he first began working with the franchise in 1948 uh, in capacity as the NBL, the National Basketball League Vice President. Uh, he started to help uh, Syracuse um, who they were having some financial issues. And so the NBL wanted to, to strengthen the franchise. So he came uh, at the request of Danny Biazone to, to help out. And then that relationship grew. And uh, he ended up resigning as GM of the Tri-City Blackhawks and sold his ownership stakes to, jo uh, to join the uh, Syracuse Nationals full-time in 1949 um, so he worked with Syracuse from, again, 1948 to January of 1955. All right. Yeah. And, uh, and just quick backstory for, uh, for listeners out there. Uh, the Tri-Cities Blackhawks, they are now the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, so still an NBA franchise there. And obviously the Nationals are now the Sixers, hence why we're doing an interview here. Uh, so, yeah, Leo uh, intricately involved with two still existing NBA franchises. Uh, but we'll focus on the, the Nationals here because, you know, this is Sixers history, so we'll stick to our heritage here. Um, so you kind of did a little uh, brief synopsis there, Christian, of, um, I guess, how Leo uh, got in touch with Danny Bison yep. um, and got to be the GM of the Nationals. Uh, but just inform the people here uh, some of the important player moves that Leo Ferris did uh, for the Nationals. Yeah, if, if it's okay with you, I want to read uh, the official team bio that uh, was printed back in the day, uh, and it kind of explains real nicely how Leo joined okay, yeah, the franchise. Ahead. I think it's a really cool uh, synopsis, if you will, of an introduction into the franchise. 
It says, Leo Ferris, executive vice president, came to Syracuse at the request of Daniel Biazone in 1948 to assist in the reorganization of the then, pardon me, the then floundering club. He responsible for obtaining the players and overall management of the Nats. His astute deals brought Red Rocha, George King, Earl Lloyd, Dolph Shays, and Jim Brasco into the fold. And of course, this was earlier on during his tenure. Uh, he signed many players after that and actually had signed many players before that. Mm-hmm. But that was a cool uh, kind of introduction as to how he became a part of the Nats, but also the type of players, the type of caliber of players that he was bringing into the franchise. Of course, right here we have uh, Hall of Famers, um, Dolph Shays and Earl Lloyd right off the bat. Um, so any other names would you like to hear? Like, uh, or what, what was the question I mean, again? Yeah. Uh, this is about uh, some of the, the personnel moves. Well, that was, that's what we call it nowadays, you know, personnel moves, but just uh, player acquisitions, draft picks, trades that he made that sure. uh, really helped out the Nats uh, wow. back in the late 40s and 50s. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's a great, great question. And I think two or three very important signings at the beginning. So Leo... Uh, We mentioned the Tri-City Blackhawks. What was cool about this particular situation, he was working with Tri-Cities, and he actually owned the draft rights to Dolph Shays. He was the one who drafted Dolph Shays. But then that same summer, as I mentioned earlier, he was working with the Nats. And Dolph Shays wasn't too keen on playing in Illinois and Moline. He would want it to stay in the East Coast. So he made sure to transfer the rights over to Syracuse because, again, the NBL wanted to strengthen that, that franchise to begin with, so it was a perfect uh, perfect situation. Dolph wanted to stay in the East Coast, uh, close to his home in New York, so Syracuse was a perfect fit. So he basically outbid the New York uh, Knicks. Uh, there's many uh, stories about a famous signing about how I made that happen, but uh, it's a it, that that in itself that happened in the summer of '48. He, I mean, he drafted him basically 70 years ago today. We're recording this on May 10th, um, 2018. 70 years ago today, he actually drafted Dolph Shays um, and um, signed him uh, a couple of maybe a couple months later officially mm-hmm. for the for the Syracuse Nats. Um, he later on was able to get Al Servi. He signed Al Servi. He was in the room. Again, he was still acting in capacity as NBL uh, vice president uh, and president because that summer he actually held both positions. Oh, and uh, actually, actually, let me just uh, pause you real quick before we go on with Al Servi. Uh, this is just for uh, context for the listeners here. Uh, so the, the Nats during the NBL, National Basketball League, as you mentioned, uh, the New York Knicks were the the BAA, Basketball Association of America team, uh, that had Dolph Shays' uh, draft right. So that's why you could have uh, two teams drafting Dolph Shays but then bidding for his services because there were two leagues at that point. So um, so I just wanted to make everybody sure and kind of caught up on that speed. Um, but, yeah, so let's continue with Al Servi, uh, who's another actually really good example of kind of the, the conflict between the two leagues back at that point. Of course, yeah, yeah. So – once uh, there were a couple of teams, I don't remember, maybe you can help me here, that, that decided to jump from the NBL to the BAA, Al Servi decided to stay back. Uh, we'd like to think, uh, and we, we know that it was because he, he had a loyalty to the NBL, but because also Leo Ferris and Danny Biasone made compelling uh, offers to, to, to make him stay, if you will. 
Um, and so obviously Al Servi went on to run, uh, be a player coach for a number of years, then coach. Um, he was the coach with the, with the franchise when they won the championship in 1955. So right there, those, those two early moves are two of those core players that ended up winning a championship for the club, uh, like six or seven years yep. later. Um, he also, uh, Leo was intricately involved in outbidding the Nationals, I'm sorry, the Rochester Royals for the services of Billy Gabor, who also became a member of that championship team. He was a Syracuse University star. He was from the area, a very, very good player. So um, those were the three, I think, early moves for the franchise. I mean, I know there's more, um, but those are the three that, that, that come to mind as it pertains to making sure that Syracuse franchise was strong, but also making sure that the NBL league was strong. So the dual purpose of, of strengthening the league, strengthening the franchise through signing, you know, these, these, these amazing players, as obviously I think I mentioned it already, El Serbi in, in the Hall of Fame. Of course, we all know that Dolph Shays is still considered one of the greatest players of our all time, fastest to to most uh, milestones, like 15,000 points, 20,000, I believe, as well. So um, so it were very solid moves early on by Leo. Yeah, and uh, Ian Assel, those three players, uh, not just, as you mentioned, um, actually the point about Leo being uh, the kind of the president of the NBL um, really does show that uh, he was involved with the Nationals before he was officially the general manager. So those moves that Christian has mentioned already, uh, those were prior to Leo officially being the GM uh, of the Syracuse Nationals. Uh, so, so yeah, as you mentioned, Dolph Shays, Hall of Famer, uh, Billy Gaber uh, played, I think, seven seasons with the Nats. So mm-hmm. uh, and made an all-star team. And uh, Al Servi, again, another Hall of Fame player. So uh, And all of them from New York State. Yep. So, yeah, uh, Gabor, uh, Gaber, excuse me. Yeah. We've, this is... Billy Gaber, like his name is spelled G A B O R, so we're having trouble. Yeah, yeah. Making Gaber. sure we pronounce his name right. But Gaber. Uh, Gaber. Awesome. Um, but he was from Syracuse University. Um, Al Servi was from Buffalo, New York, but didn't yeah. go to college. So that's actually interesting that you had a guy yeah. who never played college ball, but was playing in the pros. Uh, and Dolph Shaves from New York University. So yeah. all New York State guys helping uh, strengthen kind of the local base. Uh, yeah, for the I Nets. should mention uh, that Leo Ferris mm-hmm. was from Elmira, New York. Yep. Which is uh, right. I mean, today, this day and age, it's uh, at most uh, maybe an hour and 20 minute drive to Syracuse, a couple of hours away from Buffalo. Uh, Leo uh, spent some time in Buffalo, New York, uh, working there for the Jacobs Brothers. Um, Then when the franchise, uh, the the Blackhawks uh, were in Moline for a while, but he went back to the New York area in 1949 officially. But would spend a lot of time in the New York area. So he's very familiar with all the players. I've read in several art- articles uh, that he had an open file on every major um, college player, every top and, and maybe even the peripheral players. He was well versed. He knew everybody on the scene. He had a great mind for players. So he was always I mean, everybody always has an eye out for talent. But uh we know that he was uh, at the time on the cutting edge of having a system and having uh, a lot of uh, a lot of information and relevant information on on all these players. Yeah, and that's actually a really good point. Uh, you know, the, I guess called the the scouting system, the scouting technique uh, yeah. for general manager for Leo Ferris um, back in the '40s and '50s. So very sophisticated. 
Um, and also, while we're talking about kind of uh, methods of being a general manager, uh, we've mentioned some of the player uh, uh, acquisitions, which we will get back to because uh, you know still more great players to talk about. Uh, but since we're at the GM kind of capacity, yeah. Um, what about his uh, his genius with uh, finances and math? Is that's uh, that's an important job about running a basketball team. You yeah. got to get the right players, but you got to balance the books, uh, keep the franchise afloat. So speak more about. Uh, Leo's ability to kind of yeah, yeah just financially keep the team afloat. Well, his reputation uh, preceded him, so of course he had helped keep the NBL league afloat. Um, he had also uh, turned the Tri Cities Blackhawks uh, organization around. He led a refinancing drive um, that proved successful. So his reputation around the league the the box office uh, receipts, the, the, the number of attendance was growing uh, for a number of years uh, when Leo uh, down in Moline. So uh, he came uh, at the request, as we've mentioned twice already, Danny Biasone um, wanted Leo to help the club. Leo wanted to help the club. So Leo led a, a refinancing drive right then and there in 1948 and helped sell stock to community members um, and uh, helped save the team early on, uh, again, that same summer. Um, so that was the first of three times that he led active campaigns um, during his time uh, with the Nationals. And so he was uh, successful, obviously, uh, he, uh, the Syracuse Nationals, uh, obviously were saved. If those, if those moves hadn't happened in '48, who knows uh, where this franchise? Yeah, there, there, might, there might not be a '76. Yeah, we don't know because the franchise <laughs> yeah. could have collapsed in '48. Yep. Or you know, so if Leo had not been successful when they recruited him, basically, and when he took it on his own mission to to save this important franchise. Who knows what the timeline is like? I'm sure that Philadelphia would have had a would have a basketball franchise today, but it, um, I would I'm going to go on a limb and say that it wouldn't be this franchise, yeah. obviously. So again, he did it uh, later on in '53 and in '54. Um, obviously, he had a very talented roster. Um, by then, he had signed um, players like Paul Seymour, mm -hmm. George King. Red Rocha. I'm trying to go off the head, so I'm trying to remember all the other teams. Feel free to well, those jump are some in. Of the big, ones. Uh, big names and, like that. And uh, Johnny Red Kerr, I think he's another. Of course, the outstanding. That, yeah, that name. was literally yep. one of his last moves. Um, his last draft that uh, that Leo ran, and you can reference this, I think, on basketball basketballreference.com or something. I think it's called. But in his last draft, he drafted uh, Johnny Red Kerr, Jim Tucker, and Dick Farley who all were obviously contributing members of that um, championship. And um, Johnny Red Kerr obviously went on to, to, to have a, a very good career. And then later on in broadcasting, he's a Hall of Fame nominee, of course. Uh, Jim Tucker, up until a couple months ago, held yeah. the record. I, I'll let you jump in yeah, there that's, because... That's, that's stunk. Uh, uh, go ahead. I mean, records are, you know, made to be broken. Yes. But, but yeah, man, Jim Tucker had the, the fastest triple-double in NBA history. I think he did it in... 
uh, 17 minutes, I think it was, That's around good. that time. Just like back in 1955, I yeah, think. Yeah, it was that season. Yeah, his, his, rookie, his first rookie season. Year. Yeah, yeah. His rookie year, I think it was at Madison Square Garden. Against the Knicks, yeah. Uh, so he had a triple-double in about 17 minutes. And then this past season, uh, Nikola Jokic at, uh, out of the Denver Nuggets, he beat him by like 30 seconds. Yeah. I was like, man. How funny so- is that, right? <laughs> that, that record that stood for so long. And so, you know, that's what's so beautiful about this process. I love the fact that Leo was involved. Okay, Leo wasn't around because Leo later on, we can talk about that later, Leo eventually ended up resigning from his position and going into real estate. But that last draft that he was part of, you know, these these three contributing members uh, to, a, to a franchise. And of course, that, that little piece of history that that Jim Tucker ended up, you know, having that record for so long. We're very proud that he was able. I, I, I found the picture of the day he signed Jim Tucker. I found the picture of the day he, he, he signed Dick Farley as well. Um, uh, it's been a, a, a remarkable uh, process just getting to know about the rich history that this franchise has. And obviously, like Dick Farley, we can briefly talk about him. He, he was a uh, he had won the NCAA championship with the with the Indiana Hoosiers, Indiana basketball team. And so he wins the championship his first mm-hmm. year uh, with the Nats as well. Uh, I believe a couple of years later, he uh, ended up uh, joining the Air Force. So his his yep. his career was was cut uh, short. He came back later, but but he he volunteered or, or he was drafted. I'm not sure. Um <clears throat> So yeah, those are just many examples. Again, uh, like like I read you in the bio of of the that that incredible player that I said you know that were contributing members of the championship team who ended up hitting the free throws to win the championship. Yeah, uh, that players like that that Leo basically signed, and of course maybe someone else would have hit the free throws or maybe some other timeline. Uh, but yeah. it's cool to have this connection of saying Leo was the architect. For this, uh, for this, for that impressive roster, who took this team took three te- uh, trips to the NBA Finals. Uh, first time against the Minneapolis Lakers, I believe, in the 1949-50 uh, season. Yeah, yeah 1950. Yeah. Then again, they faced uh, Mikan, uh, George Mikan, and the Minneapolis Lakers uh, in the 1953-54 season, and both times they lost. And then finally, they got over the hump. Uh, probably or definitely, you know, everybody, it was a seven-game series, but with the help of Johnny Red Kerr, the help of, of, of Jim Tucker, the help of, D- of Dick Farley, um, they got over that hump uh, when they faced, uh, I believe, the Pistons, right? Yeah, yeah, Fort Wayne. Fort Wayne Pistons. Fort Wayne Pistons, yeah. Yeah, and that anniversary went by, I think it was like April. Of, yeah, it was of around, April, around April 10th. Uh, April 10th of 1955. Yeah. And so, yeah, again, we go back to the financial things. You know, Leo obviously had, was wearing a lot of hats at the time. Leo was running the club. He was the, uh, the, the, the face of the franchise. I like to, and I never want, you know, I think uh, I, I'm here to talk about Uncle Leo. We can talk about Danny Biasone as well. But mm-hmm. I obviously want to make clear that at the time during Leo's tenure with the club, Leo was making the majority of the moves the decisions he obviously had a uh, the team owner who had to okay certain moves but a little known fact is that leo was also uh, he had ownership stake in the front franchise and this is something that i didn't even know growing up 
Um, we knew about, and we can talk about later about the shot clock. Mm-hmm. We knew about that he was the original founder of what became the Atlanta Hawks franchise. We knew that he had uh, done certain things, but I was not aware that he had ownership stake in the franchise. So when people say, oh, Danny Biasone uh, was the owner, well, actually, during Leo's uh, time, he had ownership stake in the franchise and he was making decisions that as a co-owner in, in, in an essence. Um, and I have, of course, I've spent uh, at this point four years cross-referencing, validating, looking over old letters, old contracts, old newspaper articles. So everything that I say here today has been well uh, uh, well. Uh, Research, yeah, research looked up. Uh, yeah, and and the, and the point about ownership is really good, just for uh, even you know listeners thinking about uh, sports uh, owners today. Uh, yeah, pretty much uh, no team today is owned by one person. Most of them have co-owners. There's a majority owner, but there's co-owners. Uh, they do stock sales sometimes. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's not surprising that you know Leo Ferris would have ownership stake. Uh, is still today that's the case. Lots of owners uh, have a hand in the club. Yep. Uh, Sixers aren't owned by one person. There's several owners of the team, mm-hmm. although there are majority owners uh, who make or sign off at least on the big decisions. Yeah. Uh, but Leo, uh, definitely unique in that. Well, not unique, but uh, special in the fact that uh, he had that ownership stake, but also made such big decisions uh, on the basketball and financial side of things. So he yeah. was really uh, clearly a force uh, in the early 50s for the Nationals. Uh, he yeah, I, 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 there's articles around that time calling him because, again, people forget. Leo left basketball, and again, we can talk about this later, but Leo left basketball at the age of 39. He, in the press, they called him the boy wonder of basketball. I have this literally right in front of me in my papers that I'm not going to, you know. Uh, it, it is in front of him. Uh, you can validate. This I is 120 pages that I have here. That, you might be able to hear the paper crinkle in the yes. background. Um, so yeah. uh, the boy wonder of basketball. And I think that a, a cool story here to, to, to jump in and maybe go back to the mm. Dolph Chase thing here, if you yep. allow me a couple, maybe a minute, is I, I have my own theories as well as to why Leo had actively said that he wanted to go back to the East Coast because, of course, he had spent a number of years, uh, I think about two years, uh, running the Tri-City Blackhawks Club, but he was also NBL president and vice president, depending on the year. Um, but I think he saw the winning recipe that he had built in Syracuse, that he had spent all summer, and he was like, oh my God, what? I, wow, all of a sudden I got Servi, I've got uh, I've got Dolph Shays, who in his first year, I think he won the NBL Rookie of yep. the Year. Yeah, his Rookie of the Year. In the so NBL. he knew that he had something special on his hands. Uh, again, Leo Ferris, something that people might not have known. Leo had been playing basketball since he was a kid. Leo was in his middle school basketball team. People, uh, uh, Leo was uh, knew the game of basketball. Leo went on to become uh, the star forward on his high school high school basketball team, the Elmira Catholic High School 1935 uh, Parochial Basketball League Championships, the New York, Pennsylvania. They qualified for a tournament in Chicago. Uh, Leo, again, he didn't go uh, and play professional ball, but even a couple years after um, his high school days when he was, I believe, uh, well, not I believe, I know he was working as a magician, he would still, I found that he was like playing in like intramural basketball leagues for like four years. YMCA clubs and they had these cool names like the Elmira, whatever, yeah. Barons or the Elmira Hawks. 
And, you know, Leo, and this is, you know, 1936, 37. uh, So Leo knew the game of basketball as well. I'm not saying that other people didn't, but he had this unique combination um, that I don't, I think was, um, maybe I want to say unique. Again, you you might, you might have some other examples, but he was the perfect, uh, uh, he had the, the pedigree of someone who had played the game at an early age, uh, who, who also had entertainment principles. As I said, he was a magician for a while, a card-carrying member of the union uh, before he went on to play, uh, work for the Jacobs Brothers yeah. and sports concessions. There, there was a magician's union. <laughs> there was, yeah, yeah. And he was president of the Buffalo's Rabbit in a Hat Club when he moved to, 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 to the Magician's Guild in Buffalo. So this combination made him into this really, uh, I think, uh, one of the first... Uh, executives that was wearing a lot of different hats at the time. He knew entertainment. He would bring in, he brought in Sarah Vaughn to perform at the uh, Syracuse mm-hmm. Halftime Show, Syracuse National, a precursor to the Duke Ellington Orchestra. Leo Ferris literally brought these world-class acts to, 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 to perform at the halftime. Later on, Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis, um, he was a sports promoter, entertainment promoter, but he got Bob Hope to perform in Syracuse. He got a lot of amazing talent that would sometimes be on their way to Buffalo, and he'd just be like any good promoter. Hey, if I, if what, what's it going to take for you to play Syracuse, and what's it also going to take for you to play a Friday and Saturday night halftime show? What, what fee are we talking about? So it was great. It was even in Billboard magazine of him uh, getting uh, Sarah Vaughn to sing a couple of tunes at halftime show and and how that would reflect in the box office uh, receipts and grosses. And again, that goes back to what we we're talking about money and, and um, financial yep. savvy of figuring out ways to put people in the seats, figuring out ways to bring in uh, women and wives and daughters and sisters to the game. How do you do that? You, how do you make it appealing? And he literally talks about this in several interviews, how he wants to, I think in his term at the time, is he wanted to appeal to the female trade or something. I forget how he worded it. Uh, I wish I, I had yeah, it that, off that, the top that, of my mind. But that, he, that sounds like a very 1940s, 50s. Yeah, it was some terminology of like yeah. he wanted to, to, to bring in, and, and he mentions that, but the, 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 the different, different fan bases and with, through entertainment as well, the halftime shows. Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, I was, you know, as a historian, try to make the connections between the past and the present. Um, so when you think about game operations nowadays, uh, the Sixers, they do halftime performances. This is nothing new. Yeah. Um, Leo, clearly, with that kind of caliber of talent. Uh, if you haven't listened to Sarah Vaughn sing. Oh, my God. Go, yeah. go, go listen to Sarah Vaughn sing. One of the best jazz singers ever. Yeah. Uh, I, in my book, it's Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughn. And, and half the camp says, no, uh, Sarah's the number one. And the other camp is no Ella, but Sarah is definitely up there. Yeah, so this isn't just uh, like a, I don't know, run-of-the-mill halftime entertainment. This is one of the best singers uh, ever in the world, and you're able to get them for halftime entertainment. So, um, But I guess to kind of – well, also, let me provide a little more context for people. Uh, I forgot this earlier. Um, As we are mentioning, uh, the Nationals playing the Lakers for the championship. Yeah. <clears throat> just want to remind folks uh, that Leo's position as GM with the Nats doesn't start until, again, what was it, 1949 officially? Officially, yeah. yeah. I believe it was, okay. uh, I want to say, August of 49. Yeah, that would make sense uh, with uh, the merger. 
So. Uh, good question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Resign. No, I'm sorry. November second. Okay. November second of 1949 is is okay, officially. Yeah. So he went uh, almost a year, a little bit, a year and change because he started yeah. at the beginning of the summer, mm -hmm. literally 70 years ago today. Yeah. I mean, this this month, mm -hmm. it says number of times in the articles that he started in the beginning of the summer of 1948. All right. So um, so with that, that's an important kind of date to keep in mind because um, I know we're kind of jumping around a little bit for you folks. So I want to make sure I kind of get you where you need to be at in terms of the dates. Um, so prior to... Summer of 49, you had the NBL and the BAA. Uh, as we saw with Al Servi and Dolph Shays, they were competing for the different players. Uh, after the summer of 49, they merged. We now have the NBA, so it's all one league together. Uh, and that very first finals, the Lakers played the Nats, as you mentioned. Uh, they play again in 1954. Uh, with that finals in 1954, the Nats had a really raw uh, – nobody's fault, really, but just a bad break. Uh, Dolph Shays injured his wrist in the Eastern Conference Finals. So when they meet the Lakers, they're kind of at a disadvantage, and they lose in seven games. Yep. Uh, but Dolph, in later interviews in his life, would also mention how in 1955, yes, they were a healthy team, but also they had the shot clock, which yep. he thought helped give them the push that allowed them to win the 55 finals. Because in game seven, the Fort Wayne Pistons has had a double-digit lead, and prior to the shot clock, they could have just held the ball and stalled and just hold on to the lead till the end of the game. But with the shot clock... Yeah, you, you got to take a shot. You can't just hold it for, you know, five minutes at a time. Uh, and fortuitously for the Nets, they're the franchise that created the shot clock. So yep. and your uncle, the GM, Leo Ferris, played an instrumental role in the shot clock. So tell us how the shot clock came to be. Uh, Leo, you know, wasn't he wasn't the man that just thought of the shot clock, yep. but he was instrumental in creating the shot clock that we know. So. Great, exactly. So the idea had been around for a while. And again, this goes back to what I was saying, that Leo knew the game. Leo had played the game. Leo had been probably a victim and a benefiter of what they called the stall ball, which mm -hmm. you, we, you just referenced, where a team holding a lead would just try and pass and pass and pass, but it made for a terrible uh, endings of games and people would start to leave, literally would mm -hmm. leave. And um, uh, so Leo and other people were trying to get to the bottom of this. But I go back to what I said about Leo having that that problem solving brain. He already had a he was a taskmaster. And um, we know that uh, this became a very serious passion for the Syracuse franchise. Uh, uh, the wonderful research that's been done by uh, someone who deserves a shout out here today, Sean Kirst, mm -hmm. who is a uh, great journalist uh, from the central New York uh, region. He's a, a very uh, good author, great author. Um, as well, I would encourage uh, those of you uh, who want to know more about this to just uh, Google Sean Kirst and you can read a lot about the early days of the Syracuse franchise because I, I learned a lot about uh, the, the franchise through him. So he uh, mentions the work of uh, the Syracuse scout Emil Barboni, I believe was his name. Um, obviously, Danny Biasone and, and Syracuse uh, Nationals GM, my, my great uncle Leo Ferris. And so Leo's main contribution was in two forms. He provided the mathematical formula, the equation, if you will, that uh, arrived that that led the led them to arrive 
at uh, 24-second, this now iconic number that's referenced in commercials. Mm-hmm. Yep, Literally was, last night I was watching a no, commercial. Yeah, I'm sure everyone listening, you watch the NBA playoffs and uh, what I think is Tissot is the sponsor. Tissot, and then they have yeah. the 24-second shot clock sitting there. And every time I see it, I think that's Leo Ferris's influence the and contribution. The, yeah. yeah. And if you'll allow me to read, because I always yeah. get like, I might get like one digit wrong. I should yeah, memorize no, this yeah, by we now. We want this verbatim. So uh, verbatim. So, uh, and I'm going to quote uh, Harvey Araton, who's a, a pretty well-known basketball journalist, but this is one of the quotes that he wrote about Leo, but it ref- it talks about the formula. It said the formula used to create the 24 second shot clock the 2,880 seconds of a 48-minute game divided by the average number of shots a game over the previous three seasons, which was 120, was devised by BSO's general manager, Leo Ferris. So again, it's uh, 20, uh, 2,880 seconds in a, a divided by... Uh, 120 shots. 120 yeah. shots, and that is 120. So that was Leo's contribution. And again, we have um, the Syracuse beat writer, Jack Andrews, that attested to this, that would literally see Leo Ferris uh, writing down potential formulas on the shot clock, uh, pardon me, on, on cocktail napkins. Yeah. At, uh, at, at the bowling alley? At the it? bowling alley, yeah. And so. Well, hold on, folks. The bowling alley, uh, Danny B. his own, owned the bowling alley. So I was like, de facto headquarters uh, for yeah. Syracuse National. So, again, this is 1950s pro basketball. You can have, like, headquarters at a bowling alley. Yes, um, yes. But great they, work happens. I think they officially had other headquarters. <laughs> yeah. they, I know they did, but, but like you said, the de facto, the de facto headquarters. Like the after alley. hours, like, like we we're going to just decompress over this. Let's let's uh, maybe bowl and, and talk about what happened. Um, so, yes, Leo Ferris uh, uh, provided this formula People, again, this was a passion because of what had happened in Fort Wayne. And again, mm-hmm. maybe you should talk about this. Oh. You referenced this famous, infamous game. Well, yeah, I mean, this, uh, there was actually, I think, two games. Okay. One I know much better, or at least the date. Or Yeah. Anyways, so one game was uh, the Fort Wayne Pistons against the Minneapolis Lakers. And the Lakers have George Mikan. And the Pistons figured, well, we can't beat them straight up, you know, you know, playing like a regular game of basketball. So they figured they'll just hold it. Yep. Uh, once they got a lead, just hold it as long as they can until the other team fouls them. Final score was 1918. Uh, and I think the Pistons did win that game. But whoever won didn't matter. The score was 1918. And people uh, were, and were people out were of the stand. Yeah. Like uh, they, a lot of people left. A lot of people were yep. upset. It actually made national news, if yep. you will. I mean, because like uh, scores uh, were low by our standards. Uh, the average score, I think, in the early 50s, you know, Low 80s, high 70s was the average kind of score, but like 1918, that's beyond the pale uh, for back then. Uh, Then another game that kind of caused a lot of uh, consternation was actually a playoff game between the Syracuse Nationals and the Boston Celtics, uh, where they went to quadruple overtime, and there were so many fouls. Uh, (laughs) Bob Cousy scored 50 points in the game, and I think he shot 32 free throws, so... The, the teams would just hack, 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 and uh, that yep. was a big problem was the stalling and then the hacking to get the ball back. So it created a really uh, brutal but really slow game with not a lot of um, not a lot of entertainment. The players were fully capable of it. Like we're talking about Bob Cousy. So like the guy's perfectly capable of putting on an entertaining game, but the yep. rules kind yep. of steered it toward a, a stall ball, of a hacking and a fouling. So the shot yep. clock really helped uh, destroy that kind of older basketball and recreate uh, the kind of game that we know today. So, yeah. And so that game was so uh, 
infamous that yeah. it really drove uh, Leo and Danny and, and the franchise to do something about it. And I want to read you a small uh, newspaper clipping, the earliest clipping that I could find about Leo and Danny's work. And again, I read this because for many years, Leo's contributions were kind of forgotten or to put it mildly reappropriated. People took certain parts of his story and, and kind of uh, attributed to others. But here's a perfect example of clipping. It says, Echoes from Fort Wayne. Danny Biasone and Leo Ferris played prominent roles in the hectic NBA executive sessions sandwiched around the All-Star Classic aiming to cut out the annoying one-two-fall trading practice and to eliminate the equally irritating stalling by the team in front. And that, again, is crucial to, to, to us in our family because it validates that not only he contributes the mathematical formula, but he's on the forefront of pushing for this mm -hmm. rule. Leo was part of the executive committee of the NBA. As a matter of fact, the inaugural uh, executive uh, committee of the NBA. Once the NBL and the BAA merges, uh, they took a couple of names from the BAA, a couple of names from the NBL, and Leo was fortunate because of his important role in this merger, he became part of this important committee that voted on many rules, many standard rules, because they were trying to figure out, hey, what are we going to take from the BAA? Mm -hmm. What are we going to take from the NBL when we have this NBA league? So again, this shows that Leo had influence. He had the outlet and access to make these important uh, moves. And so that, that's when I said two very important things. Not only did you help create it, but you lobbied for it. You pushed for it. Yeah, basically, um, you know, today's parlance, so you, you, you sold it. Like you can make sold it. You made the product and you sell it. Sell it because yeah. Leo was, listen, as I tell you, don't underestimate the fact that Leo had to get up in front of people and do magic shows. I found clippings of him performing, you know, it was like a half concert between a, a soprano that was going to be singing Schumann songs and Brahms songs. And then between certain movements, Leo would get up and perform feats of magic. And so Leo was used to holding a room. Leo had presented rules before. And maybe it's best for another time, but but he there's other important real rules that Leo was part of: the widening the lane, uh, could decide right, uh, deciding how long the NBA game was going to be, how, how the roster sizes. Leo was part of those very important uh, rules that needed to be uh, set in stone. Uh, and then one other clipping that I want to read to you that I think is also important because here is the own franchise uh, uh, pointing out. Bob Sexton, who was the publicity director of the Nats, pointed out that the 24-second rule was recommended by general manager Ferris and the two-shot two backcourt foul, which will be retained from last season, was suggested by President Biazone. So you have these two uh, members of the Syracuse Nationals, this franchise that we have today as the Sixers, in the room of the NBA Rules Committee, the executive sessions, you know, wheeling and dealing and saying, listen, this needs to change. We have what we think is a good um, a good uh, recipe here with yeah. this 24 seconds that could help the game. All right. And, uh, and, and just uh, to wrap up this interview, uh, which I think we're, we're, what you've been saying here, I think, is building toward this. Um, actually, you stated it um, not directly, but you've been stating it, I think, these last few minutes. Um, you know, what, what is, in your mind, uh, Leo Ferris's impact um, specifically for the Syracuse Nationals? Because uh, he did have a huge role with basketball at large, but 
Florida franchise, the Syracuse Nationals, now the Philadelphia 76ers. Yeah. Uh, what, just in your explanation, your words, is his contribution to the, to the franchise uh, that we have now? Ooh, that's such a great question and such a big question. I know. I mean, basically, wrap up what we've been talking yeah, about. Yeah, what, yeah, what, yeah. What, what I, I, I want to get to this one quote uh, that Maurice Podoloff, who was the NBA commissioner, what he said about basically the role that Syracuse was playing in the NBA at the time. Uh, but, okay, to summarize, I believe that Leo, uh, I know that he's helped save the franchise. He not only uh, through the series of building the franchise that took three, tri- three trips to the NBA Finals, but as you well know, the Syracuse Nationals and there's the connective, connective tissue between the 76ers they still, I believe, still hold the record for the consecutive playoff appearances at 22. Between 1949-50-50 to 1972, they went to the playoffs 22 times in a row. Now, the point being of this, Leo wasn't with the franchise for 22 years, but that streak wouldn't have even existed had Leo not been the architect and put in place that first strong core of of players that allowed the Syracuse to make the playoffs every single year they were in existence, basically, in the NBA, that is, mm-hmm. you know, from 49 to 63. They made the playoffs every time. So that kind of cool streak, again, you know, we talk about streaks, how important them are they really, but that's just provide that a winning recipe, a really solid foundation. Uh, when Philadelphia was getting a franchise from from Syracuse, they were they were getting a, a a proven winner, if you will. This was a strong franchise that had um, a, a world championship on its on its pedigree. They had a couple NBA finals, and so Leo was part of that. Of course, I'm not. I, I never. I don't want to imply that he did everything on his own. But my role here is to talk about Leo. Uh, we all know about Danny, but I am Leo's advocate uh, because Leo was basically, uh, like you said, he left the game in 1955 at the age of 39. He later got sick with Huntington, so he lost his ability to speak. Uh, and so we are lobbying, we are talking, we're, we're sharing the good word about what Leo Ferris did. And that does it for another episode of Sixers History. We'd like to thank Christian for joining us in studio. I hope you all enjoyed the interview. And if you want to learn more information, obviously follow us at Sixers History. uh, But also give Christian a follow. Uh, He runs Leo Ferris NBA on Twitter and Instagram, uh, showing just just great uh, newspapers, photographs, information from his great uncle's tenure uh, in the NBA as a GM and many, many other things as we've talked about. So, again, thank you all for listening. See you next time on Sixers History.